You're listening to the Slice of MIT podcast, a production of the MIT Alumni Association. This episode of the Slice of MIT podcast was produced alongside the MIT Alumni Association's Cardinal and Gray Society, a program that invites MIT alumni who have reached the 50th anniversary of their MIT graduation to gather for social and intellectual events between their five-year reunion festivities. For more information on the Cardinal and Gray Society and its upcoming events, visit the community section of the MIT Alumni Association website at alum.mit.edu communities. This talk by former United States Secretary of Energy and MIT Professor Emeritus and honorary member of the MIT Alumni Association, Ernie Moniz, titled Addressing Global Threats, Climate Change, and Nuclear Security, was recorded during the Cardinal and Gray Society's Spring Lecture and Luncheon at the Cosmos Club in Washington, D.C. in April 2018. The talk also includes introductory remarks by Cyril Draffin, Jr., MIT Class of 72, Graduate Class of 73, who is a member of MIT's Corporation Development Committee, the MIT Club of Washington, and is a project advisor with the MIT Energy Initiative. The lecture and luncheon was jointly organized by the Cardinal and Gray Society, the Emma Rogers Society, which helps surviving spouses of MIT alumni stay connected to MIT, and the Catherine Dexter McCormick Society, which honors donors who have left planned gifts and bequests to MIT. I'm honored to have the privilege of introducing our speaker, Dr. Meniz. Dr. Meniz served as the 13th Secretary of Energy from, 19, from excuse me, 2013 to 2017. As secretary, he advanced energy technology innovation, nuclear security, and cutting-edge capabilities for the American scientific research community. He also placed science and innovation at the center of the global response to climate change. He joined Massachusetts Institute of Technology faculty in 1973 and was the founding member of the MIT Energy Initiative. He is the Cecil and Ida Green Professor of Physics and Engineering Systems Emeritus and Special Assistant to the MIT President. He received a Bachelor's of Science degrees in Physics from Boston College, a Doctorate in Theoretical Physics from Stanford University, and eight honorary doctorates. He received the Distinguished Public Service Medal of the Department of Defense, in addition to numerous awards for his worldwide efforts. Please welcome me and join in welcoming the dynamic Dr. Ernie Meniz. Well, at least you didn't say the static <laughs> Ernie Moniz. <laughs> Which, uh, well, thanks, uh, Cyril, uh, for that invitation, uh, for that uh, introduction, and thanks for the invitation to come here. Um, uh, your work on um, cyber and grids, I, I, it's not something I was, I'm going to uh, mention today, but uh, I actually spent about a half an hour this morning talking about that uh, to others. Uh, a uh, very, very serious uh, uh, issue in particular as we see the uh, risks to our infrastructure um, uh, growing and I won't get into why the risks might be even higher these days or over the next weeks than they have been, but, uh, but that's great. And, uh, and I really appreciate the work that you do with MITEI, uh, the, the Energy Initiative, uh, which I will mention a bit, uh, a bit later on. Uh, uh, as uh, continuing to look for solutions to some of our problems. But let, let, me not, uh, let me not go there now, I'll come back to that. Uh, 
Um, the, it's uh, good to be back with uh, MIT uh, folks. I'm, I've spent, frankly, most of my time during the week here in Washington uh, carrying on now guerrilla warfare from, uh, for the issues that I was dealing with uh, as, uh, as secretary. I do want to clarify uh, my term uh, going into 2017. That was noon on January 20th, uh, just to, just to, just to make, it, make it completely clear. Uh, the, uh, so uh, the Department of Energy, uh, even for those of you in Washington, uh, uh, is often not understood for its uh, complexity. Uh, and my, my good friend here, Mike Telson, uh, uh, with whom I served in the Clinton administration at the Department of Energy, uh, knows, uh, knows very well uh, that at least my uh, whimsical description of the Department of Energy is the Department of Weapons and Windmills Quarks and quagmires. Uh, so, uh, yeah, nuclear weapons, clean energy, basic science, and cleaning up the Cold War mess. I mean, those are four big, uh, big uh, uh, missions. But I think what's important, and is not, uh, I think we made some progress in raising the profile, but it's still not, not, not sufficient, I think. What holds all of those missions together is science and technology. I mean, the Department of Energy really is a science and technology powerhouse. Uh, uh, in all of those mission areas, it's about applying science and technology to get, uh, to get, to get solutions. And, um, and there is a very special asset, uh, the 17 national laboratories, uh, which again, people often confuse. They think, okay, Los Alamos does bombs and, uh, and Oak Ridge does clean energy. Uh, no, they all do all of the above, and it's that intertwining of those missions from basic science uh, to technology development to national security that really gives the vitality to those as research institutions, uh, not to mention, of course, their extensive collaboration with universities. So, so that's kind of a very small snapshot of the department. But what I want to emphasize and what will be the, the, the thrust of my remarks today is that uh, certainly my tenure uh, at the department as secretary, uh, I mean, frankly, I was extremely fortunate because the president's priorities, this is not, I can assure you, not always the case. The president's priorities actually aligned with DOE's responsibilities. The, uh, uh, when he was in office, uh, President Obama, uh, just less than two months, he gave a uh, very important speech in Prague on nuclear security, on nuclear weapons, nuclear materials control. He started uh, four, a series of four international summits, literally summits with like 50 leaders of countries coming on nuclear security issues, unheard of. So obviously we had a chance to really help advance that, but then of course clean energy, innovation and climate change, another major priority of the president, especially in the second term when I, when I was, when I was uh, at, at the department. Uh, and so I'll come back to the, th these will form the, 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 again, the core, of my, core of my remarks. But just to say that, uh, it, you know, you, you all know it makes a hell of a difference when the president actually wants to see you get something done uh, in, these, uh, in these areas. And, and the Department of Energy is not always in that position, uh, that, that's for sure. So anyway, so uh, I will talk about, about those. Now, of course, it's also a, a thread of what I would call global risks. 
uh, climate change, uh, nuclear weapons. I would add to that uh, bio issues, uh, pandemics. Uh, uh, I won't speak about that today, and although I'm happy to do so in questions, uh, but uh, uh, again, with uh, this is the case where again the technology advances, gene editing and CRISPR and, and the like, uh, hold of course tremendous uh, upside uh, for uh, for the economy, for people's health, uh, uh, etc. But we also know with it comes some risks, uh, and we can go into that. But uh, but the bottom line is, uh, uh, just to say what I'm doing now here in D.C., uh, one organization, the Nuclear Threat Initiative, uh, would have been named the Global Threat Initiative if that wasn't already trademarked. Uh, so we do bio anyway, uh, and uh, and then uh, doing um, some work with, with former colleagues in the Energy Futures Initiative, which is on the energy and climate side. So um, now the nature of those risks is very different. I mean, I would call you know climate change is kind of a slow motion train wreck, uh, whereas the nuclear risks are for potentially uh, kind of cataclysmic uh, events uh, with the potential of being set off, frankly, more through miscalculation than uh, than intent. Uh, so very different in their natures. Uh, the bio. The pandemic threat is again very different in its nature, but the, what, what's in common is that these are these are really gro uh, global threats, and what we need to do, especially with a scientific and technical background, is really try to generate the solutions, uh, or at least the risk mitigation strategies uh, in this uh, in in these areas. Now. Um, Actually, we heard earlier at the table, uh, 1993 was raised. I was going to raise 1992 as a reference point uh, that uh, things, boy, did things look different then in both of these arenas. Uh, on the climate side, you know, we forget that addressing climate change, roughly speaking, is the law of the land. In 1992, under President Bush the senior, uh, in an amazingly short time, the Senate ratified the Rio, uh, Rio de Janeiro Treaty uh, to address climate change. Uh, what was left was the details, like what are the numbers, you know, uh, et cetera. But the idea of addressing this was, was ratified by the Senate. Uh, uh, in 1992, we were at the end of the Cold War, and it looked like this horrible nuclear business was behind us. Well, unfortunately, now we go forward a quarter century. Uh, certainly the latter uh, is not the case. Uh, uh, as I'll describe, I think we are at a more risky situation than we have been since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, and on climate, uh, at a minimum, we see uncertainty and we see, frankly, that we are way beyond the curve in terms of reaching the kinds of objectives that were put forward in Paris. So uh, uh, in 2015, um, uh, going back to that issue of being aligned with the president at, in the Department of Energy, we did have two major steps forward uh, in these areas. One was the Paris Agreement on, on, uh, on climate, uh, and the other was the Iran deal um, uh, for uh, nuclear, uh, uh, preventing nuclear weapons in Iran. Uh, and as we'll discuss, we know obviously the challenges we have in, in, with both of those. Um, uh, but we'll also talk about what may be part of the part of the solution. So let me start with the climate, uh, the climate issue. The, in Paris, uh, as I'm sure you all know, 
the, uh, on the last day by definition of the Paris meeting uh, in December uh, 2015, uh, essentially every country in the world uh, came together and took on some form of, of uh, you know, significant target. Uh, uh, it was a significant step, but only a first step, and, and, and we'll, we'll focus on that. Um, but it was important. What was important was that every country was, was involved. Because I, re I remind you, uh, the, we had the 92 treaty signed, as I said, uh, but then in uh, uh, 97 was the Kyoto Conference, you should think about the Kyoto was the follow-on to Rio to try to put some of those numbers in. That's what it was. But frankly, it was horrible, to be perfectly honest. Uh, and mainly because it drew this bright line that said that only the developed countries had responsibilities. And then the United States, we had the Byrd-Hagel resolution. Many, I think people in this room are I hate to say it, but old enough to remember it. Uh, uh, um, and, uh, and that was the statement. There was a unanimous vote in the Senate to say, if the, if the large developing economies aren't part of this, forget it. Paris finally answered that question. And so if you go from 92 to the Paris Agreement, uh, it's got its imperfections, it's, it's political commitments, not binding commitments, etc. But fundamentally, it was the track that was demanded by the Senate, and, uh, and, uh, and, and we have it. Then I'll come back to, the, to, the, to President Trump's uh, um, uh, threatening, at least, to pull out of that. But what I want to say first, before we get on to that, is that there was a second announcement uh, in Paris, at the Paris meeting, which uh, I think will prove to be as significant, uh, uh, maybe because I'm MIT, uh, as, the, uh, as the agreement. And that is on the first day of the Paris meeting, the, the national leaders, including President Obama, announced something called Mission Innovation. Uh, and that was a commitment by uh, 20 countries, it's now 22, uh, plus the EU, but 20 countries uh, to double their innovation investments in clean energy uh, over a five-year ramp-up period. Now, we knew that was going to be hard to get there, uh, but, uh, uh, but what we've seen now in the United States, but that was a big deal it's following the introduction. It was an international declaration that innovation is at the heart of climate solutions. I mean, that's really what it was. Uh, and that's an important step in and of itself, even if you don't quite make the doubling over, over five years. Uh, uh, now, many countries are actually working at this. They're really working at it. Uh, there was a wonderful report put out uh, from a meeting in Mexico uh, looking at the opportunities of accelerating uh, Trans transformational acceleration for new materials using high-throughput robotic technologies and artificial intelligence with the goal of reducing the time for introducing these materials from 20 years to two years. Now, whether they'll get it, I don't know, but, but this is the innovation thinking that's going on in the international sphere. Now, I've got some good news, some bad news, and some good news. The bad news is that, uh, frankly, the administration in submitting its budget to the Congress, uh, forgot that the factor of two belongs in the numerator and not the denominator. Uh, the, the, the good news, however, is 
and this is really good news, Congress completely ignored it. And in fact, gave an increase of roughly 10%. So kind of half of the 20% metric for the doubling, doubling in five years. Programs that the administration wanted to zero out, like RPE, apparently because it was successful, uh, were instead given a 15% increase. I'll give you an example. The loan program they wanted to eliminate, and frankly, we, me, my colleagues and I did a paper uh, two months ago pointing out that why would you zero out a program that's got $40 billion of loan authority, not, not giving money, loan and loan guarantee authority, which could be leveraged perhaps to as much as $100 billion of energy infrastructure when you are calling for an infrastructure program that you don't know how to pay for. Congress said, yeah, not a good idea. We'll keep the loan program uh, and go forward. So the good news is, despite all the rhetoric on the innovation side, the solution side, there's a lot of support uh, there to, to, to keep this going. And, uh, and we need to keep that innovation train running so that uh, when the policy catches up, uh, we'll have a lot of solutions that can be deployed in a, in a timely way. Now, the other thing, however, is that, as I said, the, the, the targets that the countries adopted in Paris are, are important, but if that's all there is, we will not be addressing the global warming challenge uh, uh, at anything even close to what is the international consensus of trying to, trying to limit uh, global warming to two degrees centigrade uh, uh, as a frankly, a reasonable compromise between mitigation efforts and the very expensive need that we will have to and are, and are already experiencing in adapting uh, to the results of global warming. Uh, we see it, I would say, particularly clearly from the point of view of rising, rising and, war and warmer seas, but it's, it's in many, many other uh, ways in, in terms of disease vectors and fires and, and all, kinds of, all kinds of consequences. So that was taken as reasonable, a reasonable kind of place to go, um, but uh, bluntly, we are not anywhere near a track to, um, to, to, um, to reach, that, uh, reach that goal. That's not a statement of pessimism, it's a statement about going back to that innovation agenda because the real target is not 25 or 30% reductions uh, by 2030, which is kind of a typical kind of a target in Paris. It's really an 80% reduction, at least in the industrialized economies, by a mid-century kind of time frame. That is tough. And we're not gonna get there without uh, a hell of a lot of innovation across the board. Now, let me, let me talk about different sectors. Clearly, efficiency or, or demand management, reducing demand across the board is absolutely essential to any, to any possible uh, solution that we can imagine uh, to this challenge of, of greatly reducing greenhouse gas emissions. The second absolutely essential part, by which I mean I cannot envision a solution without also 
having the electricity sector go to essentially zero carbon. Now that can be obviously renewables, it can be nuclear, it can also be something like even coal power plants if you capture the carbon and uh, can securely um, st store it for a very long time underground. So it, it's not necessarily limiting the fuels, but it's got, to, it's got to go to zero carbon. And the reason I say that is, A, electricity is ubiquitous, its role in the energy system is growing, and frankly, there are a lot of options to get there. Once you do that, the next statement is, well, if you've got a nice, clean electricity system, electrify everything that you can. And obviously, uh, electric vehicles, light-duty vehicles, uh, you know, there's a lot of progress being made. I think the battery, the work of Mighty and, and others, uh, uh, have brought costs down dramatically uh, for uh, batteries. I think there'll be another factor of two within a decade. And that factor of two is a big deal then for the competitiveness of light-duty vehicles uh, uh, in uh, straight-up you know, com competitiveness uh, in, in the economy. That's great. But let's get real. We are not going to electrify the entire transportation sector. And the obvious example is, is aircraft. Uh, it's hard to see a jumbo battery-powered aircraft. Um, uh, so that's going to be tough. Let's go to industry. Even harder. Are you really going to electrify industry to replace, there's probably some chemical engineers here in the room, high temperature process heat for these very carbon intense industries? Not very likely. So with my physicist back of the envelope calculation, and I can assure you that's all I can do anymore, uh, the, uh, I have a hard time seeing how even with innovation on the technologies we kind of see in front of us, we can actually reach that deep decarbonization. We'll need something really innovative. Maybe it's, don't laugh, maybe it's a revival of the hydrogen economy idea and electrons and hydrogen kind of are the carriers uh, for energy. I, I think what it needs in any case is yet another, let me call it, sector. And that is large-scale carbon management. That could be capturing carbon dioxide from sources like uh, power plants or, uh, or um, uh, industrial facilities. However, to make a difference, you would have to capture so much that the, it shouldn't be surprising, that the, the management issue you have with carbon dioxide, with a carbon dioxide fluid, is an industry as large as the oil industry. Because after all, oil is, you know, produces a third of, uh, of, uh, of CO2, so it shouldn't surprise you to have a big impact, you have to have an industry of that scale. So it just gives you an idea that that's, it's not rocket science to have an industry of that scale, but imagine the big, the, the challenges you have to get there and to do, do, do it in accelerated fashion. 
So really this innovation is important. Second point I would make is we need innovation at all time scales. So uh, for example, in the near term, we need innovation. A lot of it is business model innovation. We need innovation that just stretches the technology a little bit and gets it deployed. Then we need what I would call, let's call it the, I'm just being crude here, the venture capital world, let's say, of, of new technologies, some of which in the intermediate time frame may be able to penetrate uh, into the energy system. And then we need, frankly, a lot of basic science yet to manage some really hard problems uh, that can be the long-term, really deep decarbonization solution. I'll give you as an example, this, is, this would be a very extreme example, but it doesn't violate the laws of physics. It's, you know, it's, it's u utilizing carbon dioxide with water and sunlight to make a hydrocarbon fuel. You know, it's done today in minuscule quantities, but as you know, there's a little issue about scaling these things up uh, and making them cost competitive. But that's the innovation agenda. It's a big agenda uh, that we have got to uh, um, uh, go on. And going to the MIT Energy Initiative, and which Cyril is working with, um, uh, it's very encouraging. First of all, the agenda is that broad. And secondly, the fact that nearly 30% of all of MIT's faculty, not just the engineering school, all of the faculty, in one way or another, have been involved with MITE, research, education, uh, campus energy management, and the like, is itself a, a, an incredible statement. Uh, so our faculty, and therefore our students and staff, uh, recognize this as one of the grand challenges that innovation is central to addressing it, and that MIT is going to be part of that part of that solution. So, so I think you know that's 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 the 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 hope, uh, and where we'll go. Now, going back to the current realities, especially here, the as we indicated, the president, President Trump, on June first of last year, made his announcement about withdrawing from Paris. I do want to say that, uh, without going through all the, all the arithmetic, uh, uh, technically, withdrawal of the United States cannot happen until the day after the next presidential election, which is a nice irony. Um, uh, but nevertheless, uh, uh, the real issue would be not executing programs uh, uh, that would be needed moving forward. However, I'm going to posit, and this is another optimistic statement, that the president's announcement in the end will be of little consequence. Uh, we're not going back. Uh, we may have more bumps in the road for the next few years. A few things could be a little bit slower. But what happened within days of his announcement was absolutely critical. Governors and mayors across the country said, we're not changing what we're doing. In fact, maybe we'll double down. And if you remember, all the things that, well, many of the things that were put forward to address climate were actually not even in effect yet. The real dec decrease in American emissions has come from state action and from market forces in which natural gas replaced a lot of coal. 
bluntly. So, you know, um, I don't want to be Pollyannish, but that is very encouraging. Maybe even more encouraging, within days, 1,700 business leaders said we're not doing anything different. Because they read the tea leaves, we're not going back, the world is not going back, and I'm not going to sit here and make, do my capital uh, allocation planning for the next 20 years based upon that statement on June 1st. So companies are largely, there are, there are the obvious exceptions, frankly, the exceptions trying to get exceptions uh, in the uh, policy and, and regulatory world. Uh, the first attempt at that with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission completely bombed. The proposal to support uh, especially coal plants uh, was defeated five to zero uh, by the commission, uh, four of whom had been appointed by, by President Trump. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of, lot of things saying we're going there and we got to hold to this innovation agenda uh, to make sure we have the solutions when the time comes to be able to really move them out. And I think, by the way, that time is not going to be so far, so far away. And by the way, another MIT person uh, has, has been part of a group that uh, has put forward the kind of solution that I think we will eventually see. That individual is George Schultz, who you may remember was <laughs> at MIT uh, 70 years ago. <laughs> uh, come to think of it, that is class of 48 uh, kind of thing. He was on the faculty, I think, at least, 48. But George Schultz... Uh, uh, Jim Baker, uh, Hank Paulson, uh, really uh, Republican, you know, conservative people. They, for example, put out a, a plan that says, first of all, we got to price carbon uh, at, a, at a price that really reflects the social costs, $45 a ton. Shocking compared to what people no normally say, but that's what it is. That is the actual social cost of, of carbon. Then they say... Whatever, and whatever you do, don't let the government get their hands on the money. Uh, so collect the money. We're talking a lot of money. We're talking $45 a ton times maybe 6 billion tons. Kind of adds up. Uh, and, um, but their approach is, look, don't use it for deficit reduction. Deficit reduction, you've got to tackle the honest way. Uh, uh, don't use it for more R&D, support R&D the honest way. Take these funds, divide it up equally, send it back to the people. And that is a progressive, let's use the horrible word, tax. The, lowest, the lower 70% of the income distribution would come out ahead. It's great for part of the political spectrum. What about the other part of the political spectrum? Well, the third leg of the stool is now that you have a carbon price, you have to remove a lot of regulation and other tax incentives. Makes sense as a package. So that's the kind of thing that's bubbling. I think it's getting a little traction, and at some point we're going to, we're going to have that happen. And that, with the fruits of the innovation, can see tremendous deployment uh, in, uh, in a short time with businesses coming up with new business models, maybe as exotic as blockchain, which maybe somebody here can explain. Uh, and, uh, you know, but new business models uh, that'll provide new services, clean energy, uh, and uh, 
and I think a very, and a very competitive economy. So, you know, so that's, I think, that's the, the way that I think we can see, uh, see our, our, our path forward. Let me, uh, let me change uh, to what is, frankly, a less cheerful subject, the nuclear security issues. Uh, and there are three that, uh, I'll be relatively brief, but three that I will uh, bring up. Uh, the Iran nuclear agreement, where I'm sure many of you know there's a May 12th uh, due date uh, for presidential decision. North Korea, where there's a possible summit discussion coming up. And finally, Russia, and I'll come back to, uh, to Russia. On Iran, let me just make a few points. First of all, the, what the agreement is, is badly misunderstood despite all attempts uh, to clarify. Let me try again. Um, you probably hear a lot uh, of statements that, oh, this is a terrible deal because it sunsets in 15 years. And all you've done is you bought us 15 years and essentially guaranteed Iran is a nuclear power in 15 years completely wrong. What happens is the restrictions on Iran's peaceful nuclear activities go away in 15 years, but we are not back to where we started by a long shot because what persists is the world's by far most stringent verification regime. That's the, that's the heart of the agreement. Think about it. Do you think Iran or any other country is going to make a nuclear weapon using their declared nuclear facilities where the IAEA, the international inspectors, have access? Well, that would be a nice invitation to get bombed. It's going to be at a covert location. That's what the agreement does. It provides forever access to any location for which there is reason, reasons to, reason to be suspect and uniquely requires Iran to provide access within 24 days, forever. Unbelievable to give that up, to cancel the deal for no obvious security benefit, to give that up. So this is a momentous decision coming up. It doesn't look good, to be honest, but that's, that's really what it's about. Secondly, and as you all know, I think uh, I, was, I, mean, I was at the table for the negotiations. And, you know, as anybody would, Iran, of course, tried every which way to drive a wedge between the United States and the others, most especially the Europeans. They could not succeed. So why don't we just hand it to them? Here's your wedge. Because the Europeans are on a completely different page uh, from us. And this is something to take very, very seriously because in my view, the sources, the sources of American power internationally 
are alliances, international institutions, financial institutions, trade relationships, and value-based systems. Every one of them is, shall I say, euphemistically suffering from some uncertainty in the current uh, discussion. So this is, this is fundamental to how the United States uh, has built the order over the last 70 years and how, and how we continue with our strength. And frankly, to, uh, if that is to be replaced by a mercantile focus on bilateral trade deficits, fantastic. Let's play China's game. We don't have a chance of winning a mercantilist game. So, uh, so I think, you know, the, the gravity of these kinds of decisions, I think, uh, is sometimes overlooked, and, and, and we've got to keep working to, uh, to, to do this, to, uh, to change this. Um, the, and, the, and the other thing I would say is on the Iran uh, deal, uh, okay, let's say in the, what I would consider to be the ideal case that the president does take the action required to sustain the deal, the other thing, and this has a lot of technical components, we are not spending our time thinking about how we want or how we shape the development of the Iranian nuclear program over 10 to 15 years so that it comes out on the other side in a way that is acceptable in terms of, of the regions and the world's uh, security needs. So uh, I want to make it clear, we have a lot of problems with Iran, obviously. And we've got to work hard on those other problems. Syria, Yemen, human rights, I mean, you know, missiles, uh, Hezbollah, these are serious problems. But you don't help solve those problems by getting rid of the one progress you've made in terms of making sure nuclear weapons are not part of the equation. So that's, that's a few things on Iran. On, on, on Korea, let me say, first of all, unequivocally, that Acknowledging the risks, I think it's a good idea for the president to have a discussion with the North Korean leader. Know the risks, but <laughs> the alternative doesn't look very good either. The question is, what is the president trying to accomplish? And this is where, and, and I wrote a fantastic op-ed uh, in the, in the uh, Boston Globe two weeks ago. Please uh, send it out to the members. Uh, which noted that, you know, in effect, if you come back and say Kim Jong-un is committed to eventual denuclearization, you've accomplished nothing. It's like the fourth time we've come back with that statement. <laughs> the, whereas, for example, something like coming back with a clear understanding that if there are going to be negotiations, real negotiations, right from the beginning, verification is on the table. That is going to be tough for them to swallow because they are such a closed society, much more closed than Iran. And now comes a linkage. How could you make that argument if you've just killed the world's best verification regime? So there, there is this linkage, and, and I think the president has an opportunity to make really historic progress, but he's got to do it on the two tracks and not, and not just 
frankly, throw, throw, <laughs> throw bombs, roughly speaking. Uh, there's more to say on that, but I think I'll, I'll just make my last comments on Russia. You know, when all is said and done, you know, it, might, it focuses the mind to remember that only Russia is actually an existential threat to the United States. Uh, and, uh, you know, they've got thousands of nuclear weapons, as do we. And the trouble is our relationship has probably never been worse. It arguably, arguably has never been worse. Um, certainly, military-to-military -military dialogue is minimal. And yet, we are in many situations of the potential for direct conflict from the Baltics to Syria. Let me make it, I don't think anybody wants a nuclear war. And that includes all the states with nuclear weapons. With Russia and the United States, I am particularly concerned about stumbling into it through miscalculation and, and, and events that spiral out of control. So, uh, so one of the things that we see, and, and uh, um, had an earlier discussion, uh, that uh, we think in, at, at the Nuclear Threat Initiative, we will continue to work to see what we can do to increase dialogue and, and cooperation in areas of clear mutual interest. I'll give you one example. And this is all about, it's a little bit of confidence building. It's a little bit of how scientists uh, and engineers during the Cold War did so much to prepare the ground that when the opportunity came, there were relationships, et cetera, that, that could be drawn upon to, to control, control risk that in the same way we need to get more stuff happening. Uh, uh, frankly, we've cut off even basic science collaboration, uh, which is, a, I, I think, a mistake. Uh, but so I'll give you one example that in my organization uh, that we've done, and we need 50 of these, is that, so we, we uh, had a meeting, we organized a meeting, which included the US government, DOE, it included Russia, it included the international inspectors, a meeting in Kazakhstan, and as a follow-up meeting coming up in Kyrgyzstan, in which we worked together to start a program to identify the radioactive sources left over from the Soviet Union days in the Central Asia republics that could be used in a dirty bomb. It's of mutual interest to all of us to pursue this. So what we're doing is, and we actually do have a list of 50 projects <laughs> that we'd like to kind of keep moving and just try to help prepare the ground so that when there is a chance for more, more dialogue, more, more dialogue on the, you know, on the big issues that we have the kinds of relationships, including scientist to scientist relationships that can uh, hopefully uh, help, help solve these problems. So um, I'll end and, and say, and then in all of these areas, including going back to the climate area, uh, diplomacy is uh, 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 something that we need to uh, uh, become reacquainted with. Uh, and frankly, I think, and you know, I'm not totally objective, but particularly in the Iran, in the Iran kind of situation, and I think there's a lot more room for science in diplomacy 
uh, as we address uh, the kinds of these, these range of, of, of ma ma major threats to our, uh, to our and other, other societies. So thank you for your attention, and um, I'm certainly happy to take, uh, take a few questions, if that's allowed. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Slice of MIT podcast. Share your thoughts on this talk on Twitter at at MIT underscore alumni. And if you want to hear more surprising, quirky, and insightful stories about MIT, subscribe to the Slice of MIT podcast on iTunes. Please rate the podcast and leave a review. Tell us what you liked and what you didn't like about this episode. And thank you to the MIT Cardinal and Gray Society for providing the audio for this podcast. And for more information on the Cardinal and Gray Society and the many other communities available to MIT alumni and friends, visit alum.mit.edu communities. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Slice of MIT podcast.